My name is Jamie Atkinson, founder of podcastclosing.com, and this show is built for six and seven figure entrepreneurs with podcasts who are looking to grow and scale their customer acquisition using that show. If you're a six or a seven figure entrepreneur with a podcast and you want to get featured on this show to talk about your own podcast journey, go to top100interview.com. Now over to your glamorous host, Brittany Chaterbock, and don't forget to subscribe for daily interview content. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. It's Britt here today. I have an incredible guest I'm about to introduce you to, Kaylee Dayton, an ICU nurse practitioner. She's also the host of Walking Home from the ICU and Walking You Through the ICU podcast. Um, She's also a critical care outcomes consultant who works with families and also ICU teams on the mission to change how they care for patients in the ICU and change the way... um, the patient survive by avoiding medical medically induced coma comas. So she's on a huge mission. You guys, I'm ready to spread the awareness with all of you. We haven't had anyone on my show doing quite the same thing. So I'm really looking forward to our topics. Uh, Welcome to the show, Kaylee. Thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Brittany. You're welcome. Now I know I kept my part really brief and, you know, probably could use you to fill in the gaps a little bit as to exactly what you do and a little bit about what brought you to this journey and where you are today, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. My business really won't make sense until the listeners understand the problem that I'm trying to solve. So for context, in intensive care units, the place in the hospital where the sickest of the sick patients go, a lot of patients need to be on ventilators life support, respirators, whatever you want to call it, right? They are have a breathing tube down their throat and they're connected to machines that are keeping them alive. And what happens in most ICUs throughout the world is that the second anyone is on a ventilator for any reason, because lots of reasons can cause you to be on the ventilator, but everyone is put into a medically induced coma, meaning that they're given the same sedation that we use in operating rooms during surgery in the ICU for these patients on ventilators, but not for a few hours. They end up having these medications for a few days to a few weeks and sometimes longer. And that is just the norm. You get on a ventilator, it's it's kind of a, a conveyor belt approach. Um, they come in really sick, they need to be on a ventilator, they get intubated, they get the breathing tube placed, they get sedated, they get put into a medically induced coma, and they lay there with that sedation for days to weeks. And very few people even question it. But I had a very different experience starting my career as an ICU or as a nurse in an ICU that did things very different. Um, Even in my first interview, they asked me, would you be willing to walk patients that are on ventilators? And I was so new. I was right out of school, basically. And I said, yes, absolutely. I love that. But I didn't even know what that meant. Right. But when I started working there, everyone treated this as completely normal because for almost 30 years, That ICU has allowed nearly every patient to wake up after intubation. So they give a little bit of sedation for the procedure, for the process of placing the breathing tube. Then they come up out of that sedation and they say, well, here you are. You have this breathing tube. It's okay. And they let them acclimate. We talk them through the process because it's not comfortable to have a breathing tube, right? But usually they do totally fine. And then we get them up and we walk them shortly after and they're walking throughout their time on the ventilator, sitting in a chair, texting, writing, typing on their computers, 
they're an active part of that process during their illness while they're on the ventilator. They're fighting for their lives and they do great. And they eventually, usually, you know, when they survive, which survival rates are much higher there, um, they get the breathing tube out and they walk out the doors. So I thought that was normal. I loved it. Then I wanted to be um, a travel nurse. So I left after a few years of doing that and I went to another ICU and immediately I could feel everything was different. And I got my patients, I got my assignment for the day and my patients on ventilators were sedated in medically induced comas. And I didn't know why. And I asked the nurse that was helping me orient to that unit, right? Cause it was my first day. I said, uh, why, why is my patient sedated? Can I get, can I take sedation off and get them up? And she looked at me in absolute terror. Like she thought that I was so crazy. And she said, what, what, what do you mean? They're intubated. I mean, they have the breathing tube. And I said, I know that they have a breathing tube, but why are they sedated? Why are they in a coma? And she said, because they have the breathing tube. And I said, why are they in the coma? Like we went in circles. And I, that's the first time it ever crossed my mind that someone would automatically be sedated in a medically induced coma just because they have a breathing tube. And unfortunately, I never learned why we did that in that first ICU. I never learned what actually happens to patients while they're sedated in those comas. And then what happens to them after what their lives are like, the impact of all of that. So um, I realized that no one believed me that I had cared for hundreds, at least of patients that were awake and walking in the ventilator. And I was just, I was quote, just a travel nurse. Right. So I just went with what was normal and I sedated my patients for the next few years. I eventually went back to that first ICU during grad school. And I immediately saw such a huge difference in how patients survived and how they were leaving the ICU. And I had a lot of questions. Like, why do we things do things so differently? Even within the same city, I worked um, in a float pool. So I was working in nine different ICUs within the same city in the same hospital system. And that first ICU was still the only ICU that allowed patients to be awake and moving on the ventilator. And a lot of times those patients were much sicker than the other patients in the other ICUs that I cared for. And I had, again, so many questions and it was just very serendipitous. It was fateful that one day I was on a plane during this time and I sat next to this man on, um, on the plane and he asked what I did for a living. I told him I was a nurse an ICU nurse and the color just dropped from his face. And he started telling me about his time in the ICU. He'd had a really bad infection, ended up on a ventilator for a few weeks, but he barely mentioned the ventilator. All he could talk about was what it was like to have his limbs nailed to the ground in the middle of a forest while trees came crashing down on him and he couldn't run away. And then other demons and things that he, he, this is four years after he'd been discharged or left the ICU. And he still couldn't talk about a lot of the things that he experienced during that coma. And I thought, well, this sounds like ICU delirium, which is something we say and use a term that we use in the ICU to describe that someone that's confused. Like, obviously he was just confused, but listening to him, I realized that he was, he was sobbing to me, telling me this. And I was like, I realized that this wasn't just confusion to him. This, these weren't just hallucinations. These weren't just nightmares. These were real to him as if he had physically lived through that. And he said that for a year after discharge, every time he closed his eyes, he would be lost back in that forest, reliving those scenarios. So he was physically very impaired. He had to relearn. He lost all of his, almost all of his muscle, right? He had to relearn how to sit, stand, walk, swallow for weeks afterwards. And that was really hard. But the worst part was 
for a year after discharge, every time he closed his eyes, he'd be lost back in that scenario. And so he went into a psychotic spiral. He ended up, he ended up divorced four years later. He still had not gone back to his original career. And I was completely shocked. And I thought, well, this can't be the norm. Like I, I, I would have heard about this. I'd been in the ICU for six or seven years. I would have heard about this as this was normal or usual. So I went to Facebook survivor groups thinking that I would have to ask people, Hey, does it, had anyone else had an experience like this? But I didn't, I didn't have to ask anything. I scrolled through those posts and they were fixated on all the same things, the panic attacks, the night, then quote nightmares, um, getting lost, the PTSD, the, the, the brain injuries, like the cognitive impairments, they couldn't think they couldn't remember words. They could barely text those posts. They were so impaired and so impacted by being in the ICU and they didn't know why. So anyways, that led me to look into the research and realize this was very common, that the more sedation we use for patients, the longer they're in comas, the more likely they are to die. And the worst, worst quality of life they have afterwards, the less functional they are. And I realized that we're not doing a very good job of keeping patients alive. And when we do, we we ruin the rest of their lives. We take away their quality of life. And so I felt really mm-hmm. responsible for what I was seeing in my ICU as far as having patients awake and mobile. I'm like, if people knew that this was possible and that what they're doing to patients is very harmful and even deadly, they would totally change. <laughs> no clinician, no ICU, no nurse, no doctor wants to cause people suffering, harm, and death. So I started the podcast Walking Home from the ICU to interview survivors, to talk about the research, to talk, um, share stories from my ICU, interview my colleagues, talk about what we're doing there. And um, then COVID hit and everything just obviously went crazy, but it was really useful for COVID. And during that time, people started saying, hey, come come present to my my team, my ICU, tell them what we're doing, what, what you're doing. Because again, that ICU was treating COVID patients that way. So the whole rest of the world had everyone deeply sedated and many of my COVID patients were awake and walking. Sometimes they did have to be on their stomachs, prone and paralyzed, but never for weeks on end, right? Mm. So it was such a different experience and all of this research, all of this information, especially applied, we see our COVID patients are very, very disabled leaving the ICU. Some, yeah, some of it has to do with COVID, but a lot of it has to do with what we do to them in the ICU. So anyways, I started doing presentations and then it turned into consulting where I get the opportunity to go in and teach ICU teams how to change how they care for patients, how to really practice the research that we have and change their outcomes. And it's amazing. I mean, it decreases healthcare costs by 30%. The the clinicians are finding healing. They've been so traumatized themselves during COVID and been um, very dehumanized and burnt out. Now they're connecting with patients. They're actually helping them get better. They're watching them walk out the doors and resume their lives. Like they are rejuvenated and they're wanting to stay in their careers during a time in which clinicians are exiting the profession because of the horrific experiences they've had and the way that things are going in healthcare. Um, And obviously we can see in the data that these teams are putting out that patients are surviving. They're in the ICU for less time and they're actually going home rather than to rehab centers for days to weeks. So then it poses other question of, okay, we're slowly making some progress in the ICU world, but doesn't the public deserve to know? Mm-hmm. I mean, your outcomes could totally change depending on which unit you're, you're in. And I, we, we see that in the research. So, so delirium is this acute brain failure that happens for lots of reasons, but in particular, from the sedation, 
the rates and the severity of those depend on um, what kind of treatment you get. So you can come in super sick and have less delirium than someone that comes in less sick, but goes to an ICU where they get worse treatment. So I started the um, podcast walking you through the ICU to help families so that they can know the information, they can know what's possible, what what's best practice, what they should advocate for for their loved ones. And then I also, as part of my business, I allow, uh, I allow, I invite people to reach out to me and we can work together to advocate for their loved ones to get this kind of treatment. And it's been amazing to see the outcomes from that, how different um, people leave the ICU because their loved ones are in there fighting for them. Um, and it, it blows my mind. ICU teams will say to these families, wow, I can't believe your husband did so well. We've never seen anyone do this well. But it's because of the evidence-based practices that they're advocating for. This information should be standardized throughout the IC community, but it's not. And so I think the public deserves to know and um, have access to support. 100%. Kaylee, thank you so much for taking the time to really go in deep with us and really give us a, the best understanding possible. I mean, the public doesn't realize this, right? Not we don't know this. You know, I never even knew all this. And it's, in, it's, it's very sad, actually, like the PTSD that these um, former patients have to go through for the rest of their lives. A lot of them. Right. So, yeah. Like, and sometimes I do need medically induced comas. I, I will, you know, put a clause that there are situations in which there's, um, severe brain swelling. They can't maintain their oxygen levels. If they move, mm -hmm. there are times in which it is necessary, but that's been very confused by clinicians by anytime someone's on a ventilator, you have to sedate them. So there are times when it is necessary. And when that happens, we should still be aware of this harm so we can be ready to rehabilitate them, to help them psychologically, exactly. cognitively, and um, physically. But again, the ICU side is grossly unaware of the impact of what we do. And then what happens after the ICU? We send them out. If they have a beating heart, we pat ourselves on the back. We figured we've done a good job and the rest is not our problem. Exactly. And, you know, honestly, it's incredible, like, you know, making everyone aware of, okay, this, this could be um, happening after we let them back out of the hospital, say if they are having to be sedated mm -hmm. because of what you, uh, the things that you just listed. However, I mean, you're also there working with the ones that don't really need to be sedated. Like that's huge. And nobody knows this because we've been taught for years and years and years that this is the normal, like who knew, like, yeah. Really? And, it, and it's human nature to just do mm -hmm. what you know and do what yeah. you've been taught. Right. If I didn't work in this first ICU, I don't think I would have really questioned this, at least not early on in my career. Right. Um, and so it's been really, I, I have a lot of admiration for these clinicians that hear my podcast and then go back to their teams or just even go back to their bedside with their next patient. And they're like, okay, we're going to change this. It's amazing. Cause that takes a lot of courage. There's 100%. a lot of fear. It's really scary to do th that the first time. And, and you feel like there's a lot, a lot of liability. They're afraid that patients will pull out their breathing tubes. There's a lot of things going on. And also it's difficult because when you start sedation, and you cause this delirium, this disruption and this injury in the brain, they get very confused. And, you know, they, like, as, like I said, they get sucked into these alternative realities. So then later when um, the other problems are getting better, maybe the pneumonia, whatever is improving, the clinicians say, okay, it looks like it's time to bring them out of the coma. So they turn down sedation and the, the patients, if they're strong enough still, unless they've lost all their muscle, um, they come out thrashing. They're trying to get to the breathing tube to pull it out. They're trying to hit the clinicians. They're panicked, but you talk to survivors and they're like, I thought I was being raped. 
I thought my kids were kidnapped. Of course they're thrashing, but on the ICU side, the clinicians see, wow, that breathing tube is really uncomfortable. It's inhumane to let people be awake and actually be aware of their surroundings. So it's better mm-hmm. that we just sedate them so that they quote sleep and therefore we're, we're being kind to them. So they really, they do this with the best of intentions because they believe that patients are unaware that they're having sweet dreams, that it's so much nicer, that the less that they move, the less aware they are, the better they are. Crazy. It's a lot. A hundred percent. And and to get everyone on the same page with that, it could be, I'm sure it's difficult, right? Um, Keely, let's talk a, lo- a little bit about your two podcasts, walking, yeah. walking home from the ICU and walking you through the ICU podcast. Now, how do these relate to your, um, con- you know, your consulting and working with doctors and families and ICU teams? I'll let you go ahead and take this stage and just really cover that for myself and the audience. Yeah, I really just started this podcast for awareness, um, but walking home from the ICU started again at the beginning of COVID um, before I even knew COVID was coming. And it was just for my own um, peace of mind to say that I was putting this information out there. I was making it accessible to people. I was um, speaking my truth and the truth. So that was just a passion project initially. But then when I realized that I was gathering all this information, all these tools to really bring change, um, and people were asking for it, I turned it into a business. So it it kind of, in a way, is a marketing tool. So people listen to the podcast, they get um, aware of what's going on, they get inspired, they want to bring change, but it's really hard to do this without help. Um, and it's one clinician maybe listening to the podcast, but then how do they get the rest of their team on the same page, right? So um, that's been a key part of bringing awareness, bringing attention to my business, my mission, Um, and then I even use it with consulting. I'll say, um, if I'm teaching a certain concept, I'm like, oh yeah, check out episode 95 about this. So it saves me some time. It gives them the ability to do more research. I put citations. Um, so all the, um, I cite all the research within the transcriptions of the podcast. So it just is another teaching tool as I'm on site teaching teams, um, so it, it served a lot of purposes and I, I, I don't think my business would be anywhere where it's at without the podcast. And so it's fun going to conferences. Um, and even when I'm not physically at these conferences, people will message me and say, I'm at this physical therapy conference and they're talking about your podcast. I'm at this other, you know, everyone's starting to really discuss it, but it's taken years to get there. So it, it all just kind of brings the attention to here's the problem and go to Kaylee for the solution. Let her teach your team. And then the family podcast was, again, I was just feeling sick all the time about what was going on and the family's having no idea. And so I started that as just, here's the information that you need to know. And then I realized I was getting calls and I realized that I could also open up my doors for business for families because they, it's hard to just hear this and not know how to apply it to your loved one. So I found a lot of value that I can add to families. Absolutely. I mean, this is an incredible way to, you know, really spread that word and, um, and your mission. So tell me now with that, how does it tie into your business? Do they often then book a call with, or like, do you mention on the podcast, you know, go book a call with me, blah, blah, blah. And then you can kind of sign up for consulting and really share what's going on in the world in the, in those ICUs or how does that work? Yep. They can book a consultation with me. So, um, at the beginning of the episodes. And even in the uh, clinician podcast, I'll have a commercial in the middle 
saying you're hearing about the problem. Let's not just focus on the problem. Here's the solution. Go to my website. Let's book a consultation. And so that's how I'm getting meetings with these people and starting to make plans. And so for families, they can book a consultation and we'll just immediately dive into talking about their loved one. um, They'll give me some information beforehand. So I make sure that this is a case that I can help. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we call and I'll have people you know, book a consultation on a Friday for a Monday. And if I see that pop up in my calendar and I see what's going on, I will make sure that we we talk right away because especially for families on one specific patient, timing is everything. So um, life is crazy, right? So I, I it, my schedule is all variable, but again, when it comes to critical illness, you can't plan it out. So I make myself really available for families um, and for, for ICU teams, it's a much more controlled you know, maybe a few weeks out. And I really try to meet with all the, the leadership. So nurse manager, medical director, um, hospital administrators. Um, I do financial presentations to say, here's the problem. And here's ex- how expensive the problem is for your hospital system. Because I found over time that um, the clinicians will want to do the right thing, but they don't have the resources or support from their hospital systems to do the right thing, which is really sad, but it's a business that's the reality. So I'm like, okay, fine. We'll talk the numbers then, because what we do to patients keeps them on the ventilator for far longer. They develop a lot of complications that the hospitals end up having to pay for, um, and it's expensive. So again, this process of care decreases healthcare costs by at least 30%. So in my business, it's putting out episodes about this and then doing presentations about this. Like I, any angle, any pull that they have that impedes them from doing the right things for patients, I'm ready. And I, I don't see anyone, no one else is doing this. No one else really has put this together. And so I'm trying to spread the word and make, be the go-to person so that we can move this in the right direction. hundred percent. And it all starts with one person. So I love what you're doing. Absolutely incredible. Now, I know that you, you also um, like to, or want to ensure that every ICU um, clinic understands or clinician understands why and how of practicing of, um, now correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. ABCDEF bundle. Yeah. Can you go into detail about that? I'm so curious to hear more about that. And maybe there's some ICU uh, clinicians actually listening. So just so we, yeah, can the, um, you know, I keep on saying evidence-based, right? Evidence means that the research has proven this has supported okay. this concept, right? And so um, there's no evidence. There's nothing in the research saying that we have to sedate every patient on a ventilator, but there's lots of research showing that when we do that, there's so much harm that happens, right? So that's part of the evidence is the problem. And then there's also research showing that keeping patients more awake and more mobile improves their outcomes. So this ABCDF bundle is a protocol that provides tools to improve how we treat for treat patients. And each letter represents a different concept. So A is assess and prevent pain. B is both awakening and breathing trials. So turning sedation off and letting patients breathe on their own on the ventilator. C is choice of sedation and analgesia. So choosing whether or not to sedate a patient, asking, do they need sedation? And if they do, there are certain sedatives that are safer than others. So that C triggers us to say, don't give it if it's not needed. And if it's needed, let's do the safest sedation at the lowest dose for the shortest duration. Um, D is delirium assessment, prevention, and treatment. So we should always be asking, do they have delirium? If they have delirium, are we treating it? Um, because there's no medication for delirium, by the way, when someone has a brain failure, 
you there's you can't just treat it. You I mean you can't just give a medication and make it go away. You have to rehab their brain. You have to get them real sleep, which isn't possible under sedation. Mobile mobility, family, like they're very specific tools. And so that D triggers us to say, are we checking for delirium? Are we screening? Because there's a certain way to screen. Are they confused? Is their brain starting to to go off course? E is early mobility, so mobilizing them right away. And F is family. So F, like family is part of evidence-based medicine in the ICU. It's a key part of patient survival. And yet ICUs kicked them out during COVID. And then they still have really restricted visitation hours. And so that's another thing I'm working on is trying to get them to change how involved the families are allowed to be in the ICU because of the ABCDF bundle. So now that's part of the evidence. We know you go to any critical care conference and they're talking about the ABCDEF bundle. Like it is a gold standard of care, but the actual practice and application of it is very poor in reality. So um, that is what I'm helping them practice um, and really master. They may have it, some different elements of it, but they're not really practicing it because the goal of that protocol is to have patients be awake and mobile, as awake and mobile as possible. But clinicians don't expect that. And they're not catering their treatments to meet that goal. They just have certain little checklist things and they don't know why they're doing it. So things like awakening trials, which means taking off sedation, they may do that once a day, meaning they take down, they turn sedation off or turn it down low enough that they start to see patients come out agitated and thrash, then they turn sedation right back on. But that's not really accomplishing anything. And sometimes they turn sedation up even higher, which makes things everything worse. But that's not the true ABCDF bundle. That's not the objective. So that's a lot of the kind of things that I'm breaking things down with, with ICU clinicians and families to say, these cultural things that we've learned have to go. <laughs> Here's what we're really dealing with here. Here's why patients come out agitated. Do you, does it make sense to restart the thing that caused that agitation and terror? No, it doesn't. So here's what else we can do during that situation. Here's how we can prevent that situation. So just working through each little element of that protocol is how clinicians really have success and how they really practice evidence-based medicine, which is what we always tout in the medical world. Incredible. Kaylee, this is absolutely amazing. I am so grateful you were able to come on my show and really spread this mission with everyone listening and myself. Um, this is huge. And, you know, I just want to give you the next minute or so here to go ahead. And, and if you have any last bits and pieces you want to share with my audience and myself, and also the best way to go ahead and connect with you, if there is anyone looking to reach out. Um, this information applies obviously a lot to ICU clinicians. It becomes very important and relevant to those that are in the ICU with a loved one. Um, but it's still really important to know if you're not yet in the ICU, we could all end up in the ICU at any point and we all need to know this. And we have what's called advanced directives, which are, um, people call them kind of in the realm of living wills and every state has their own advanced directive. And there you can say what you want as far as your wishes, um, in your medical care especially if it comes to the point of needing to be in the ICU, if you want CPR or not, um, if you want to be on a ventilator or not, if you want certain um, life-sustaining treatments, right? Within those advanced directives, that's where you need to specify if you want, um, whether or not you're willing or, or wanting to be in a medically induced coma. 
So like my advanced directive says, I do not want sedating medications unless it is essential for my survival. And I have power of attorneys, like other colleagues that I've worked with that know whether or not sedation is necessary. And I want my husband to talk to them if I end up in the IC, right? So I would exhort you to be very aware of the reality of this, how it can impact you or your loved ones if you end up in the ICU and to make this part of your advanced directives. And if you need more support, if you have questions about this, if you want me to help you with your advanced directives, or um, if your loved one is in the ICU or you are called or an ICU clinician and you want to help your team make these changes, reach out to me at www.daytoniceuconsulting.com and you can book a consultation. You can email me from that website. You're also welcome to inform yourself for the general public. My podcast, Walking You Through the ICU, episodes, I think, um, seven through 10, seven, I, they're only 11 episodes. So there are um, episodes on delirium, mobility, but episode eight is the reality of medically induced comas. And that's a really good one for any member of the public that wants to understand the history of medically induced comas and the reality of them. Um, that's extremely relevant to anyone that is living in this world. Incredible. Keely, thank you so much for everything today. Um, one step at a time, getting on these podcasts, sharing what you're doing, letting people know what's really happening and, you know, educating people. I didn't know all this and I'm sure not everyone else did. So I really am so happy you were able to take the time of your day to come on and spread this awareness. Thank you again. Thanks for letting me be on and, and share what's, what's going on in the world. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Group, if you're listening and enjoyed, please like, and subscribe. If you're looking to come on my show, just like Kaylee did to spread awareness with what you're doing, talk about your podcast, talk about the business. Um, please go to top100interview.com and also go check out Kaylee. If you are a family member, you know, doctors, ICU teams, go check out www.daytoniceuconsulting.com and um, give her a shout, book a call and get some information, you guys. Thanks so much. Catch you on the next episode. Hey everyone, I hope you really enjoyed that episode. As always, if you want to listen to more daily interview content, make sure you subscribe. And here's three ways I can help you in your business for free. One, check out my video on how we're building a pipeline that produces 30 plus prime sales calls every single week using podcast setters and a basic interview funnel. And this is actually how I was able to quit social media forever. You can go to podcastrebels.com forward slash setters. Two, if you're a six or a seven figure entrepreneur with a podcast, we actually want to interview you on one of our top 100 shows. Head to top100interview.com and then three, download our podcast closing formula. It shows you how to create a podcast sales team that books out your sales calendar each week using the podcast closing client attraction method. And you can go to podcastrebels.com forward slash podcast formula. Now at podcastclosing.com, we help six and seven figure entrepreneurs with podcasts create a system for predictable client acquisition without relying on paid advertising or social media by building out podcast sales teams. Now, if you want help turning your podcast into a high ticket client acquisition machine, then book a call with our team to see how we can help. Go to podcastrebels.com forward slash chat. All right, guys, we'll see you in the next interview.